Good afternoon. It's Monday the 8th of January 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we have Alex Thompson and Mark Anderson. Um, we're going to start off uh, with the Horizon IT scandal. We were talking about this on Friday's programme. Uh, MPs talking about it today, as we'll see in a second. Uh, here's David Davis, first of all, uh, and he's saying, uh, of all the cases depending on a single lie, uh, of all the cases depend on one single lie, uh, and that is nobody but the postmasters and mistresses could access their computers. Uh, we know that to be untrue. Now, so of course, this is about the postmasters and postmistresses uh, accused of fraud by the post office uh, following the bugs with the Horizon IT system. If you want more of the background on this, have a look at Friday's uh, news program. David Davis went on to say this, I see no real reason, no logical reason, you can't have a mass case, mass appeal on that basis. And the reason for, for this is because uh, many uh, of the, I mean, actually the vast majority of the uh, postmasters and postmistresses who were prosecuted by the post office uh, for alleged fraud uh, are still uh, living under that prosecution and under that uh, guilty verdict, even though they were not guilty. It's absolutely clear they weren't guilty. Um, Andrew Bridgen is probably the only other MP in the House of Commons uh, at the moment uh, who has been campaigning on this for many years. Uh, he said, being, despite being one of the first MPs to raise concerns about the Post Office Horizon scandal, and one of only two of that five who remain in elected office has still not been called to give my evidence to the Horizon Scandal public inquiry. I'm repeatedly told I would be called before Christmas, uh, and he's wondering which Christmas. Uh, and then he had uh, he has an article uh, published in uh, TCW um, today. If you want to read more about his 14-year fight uh, to deal with this, so um, I recommend reading this article and getting a bit more background on the whole thing. Um, in the meantime, uh, there is a uh, campaign, the campaign has been running, there's a, a, a petition here on 38 Degrees with over a million signatories already uh, calling for Paula Venels uh, of the post office to have her uh, CBE taken away from her. Now, who is she? Well, she is a former Anglican priest uh, and she was chief executive of the post office, which we've got to remember the post office wholly owned by the UK government at the moment. So she was CEO uh, from 2012 to 2019. Uh, and uh, she had also held other roles within the organisation. She was given uh, a CBE for services to the post offices in 2019. Uh, and then she left uh, just before the High Court judgment uh, which uh, basically said that the management of the company had punished postmasters for mistakes in their own computer system. And she took more than £400,000 in pay and bonuses uh, when she left. Uh, so anyway, calls for her uh, CBE to be stripped. I think it goes beyond uh, the removal of honours here. Uh, she needs to be facing a court case herself, in my opinion. Um, anyway, the inquiry uh, is back in action this week, uh, so here it is. Uh, and one of the first things they're going to do is to hear from uh, a partner at a, a company called Burgess Salmon. This is the law firm that is now representing uh, the post office. So the inquiry has confirmed that it will hold a further hearing regarding the post office's disclosures to the inquiry. Uh, and that's going to be held on the 12th of January 2024, so that's this week. Uh, Sir Wynne Williams announced the intention to hold the hearing after evidence from representatives of the post office, uh, Herbert Smith Freehills and KPMG revealed process failings and potentially deeper rooted 
problems related to the post office disclosure. So in other words, there have been questions about whether the post office has been providing full disclosure of documents uh, from the beginning. And clearly those questions continue. Uh, and so they are going to call in uh, the uh, legal team to give uh, to, to inquire more about those. Uh, but if we look at the actual hearing schedule, then they're saying that phase four is examining action against sub-postmasters and others uh, with respect to policy-making, audits, investigations, civil and criminal proceedings, knowledge of and responsibility for failures in investigation and disclosure. Uh, and that starts uh, tomorrow. So uh, in the meantime, the Post Office Horizon System Compensation Bill uh, continues to make its way through uh, Parliament. That's currently uh, in the House of Lords for its second and third readings and also the report and committee stages. Uh, this all starts this week as well. Uh, but we've also got to keep in mind that in, since this began, uh, the government hasn't uh, decided to abandon Fujitsu, who is the company that has provided this appalling system to the post office and is part of the cover-up uh, without question, um, because the government has uh, given since 2013, £3 billion uh, in contracts to Fujitsu for IT services uh, since then. So apparently, uh, we uh, continue to reward those who um, are causing the biggest problems. So anyway, we'll have more on this in due course. Uh, today is an important day because it's a day of action in Germany. Uh, Alex is going to talk about this in one second. This is Christine, Christine Anderson pushing this out. Uh, it's the first 2024 Germany-wide action day. Uh, and, uh, you know, huge numbers of uh, farmers and their tractors out on the streets, as we can see on screen at the moment. Uh, so, Alex, uh, let me welcome to the programme. Uh, give us uh, some more on this. Well, it's going to be difficult to give you too much more, Mike, because the German mainstream media, or as we now increasingly like, like to call them, the legacy media, have been scrupulous in their silence. But in a moment, I will bring up some details from one of the painstaking Substack bloggers who have taken the place of the failing media. Just before we move on to that, though, uh, Nick Wallace's book, that's Wallace with an IS at the end, called The Great Post Office Scandal, is very well worth reading on what you were just covering. Postofficescandal.uk. You can order it direct and you don't need to go through any nefarious middleman publishers. Uh, and there's a principle at stake there, which we'll see later in the news as well, which is that the corporate underbelly of the crown has captured the prosecutorial bodies to such an extent that a private company can press a button, run a script uh, dressed up as AI or algorithms, but it's just a flowchart saying probably guilty. And that's what happened with these sub postmasters, uh, ordinary mom and pop stores, to use American parlance, who got this great uh, privilege of, of holding a post office franchise in the store. But let's go on to uh, Germany. Now, Epimetheus is one of the best uh, bloggers around for, from Germany, uh, and Defacle 2.0, the Torch 2.0, uh, is his brand. And he's reporting that the German people are going on general strike, uh, which is quite something for such an orderly nation as Germany. And this will be in the show notes for people to follow. Uh, but in summary, he's saying that there's a situation in Germany that's now quite explosive. And he really has a, a, a justified bugbear about the legacy media. So let's see what has been uh, raked up. First of all, the background to the discontent. Um, last Sunday, there was uh, another poll of uh, people by phone and uh, also online of how they would vote in the next regularly scheduled general election, which is autumn 2025. So it's not a short-term knee-jerk question, but how are you intending to vote next year? And you can see that the three parties that make up the coalition, the Red Socialists, uh, the very dark blue or black uh, union, which is the Christian Democrats, 
and the Greens, uh, they're all losing support, even if it's only by one percentage point since last time. But it's a gradual, inexorable process. Uh, at 5% and just underneath that, at 3%, you will see the threshold to get into the Bundestag. You see that um, there's, there's quite a, a rise there for Alternative for Deutschland, Christina Andersen's party. More moves afoot to ban that party outright, and some of the more moderate wing of that party are seeing the writing on the wall and forming a new party now, possibly including the former general protector of the German constitution, Hans-Georg Maaßen. So that's going to be a real kick in the teeth for the establishment. Also is illustrating the degree of discontent in Europe's economic powerhouse, Germany. This was done for ARD, the mainstream and indeed publicly funded media there, um, directly funded by taxes. We'll see how Britain does that later in the news with its public broadcasting. Uh, but the question this time was, how content are you with the German government at federal level? Now, the light and dark greens together are those who are in any way pleased with the per performance of the government. And that stops at 17% or one sixth of the population. The remaining five sixths of those polled were either not content or utterly discontent, gar nicht zufrieden, with the performance of the government. And that's before this latest scandal kicked in, which is the first in a series of what might happen in other European countries, whereby what we know in Britain as red diesel, most European countries call it that as well, uh, that is uh, not given sales tax or value-added tax for the purpose of agricultural uh, machinery, that is going to be removed because the Greens in the coalition wish it so. It's already been uh, pinched to the maximum in, in Germany and bordering countries. Uh, I have found out very recently that neighbouring Belgium even sends farmers a tax bill when they voluntarily turn up for their local municipalities uh, and uh, go onto the public roads to clear snow, for example. They will then be told, though, uh, for that amount of fuel you used, you now have to pay uh, back, back owing taxes, even though it was in the public service. So what else has Epimetheus found? Well, uh, the uh, Twitter account Professor Tree Freedom says, and, and the uh, Google Translate has failed to get the acronym right here, the ERR in the middle there, so I'll give that for you, says when the farmers dump their manure in Berlin soon, and they are already there at the main monuments in Berlin with police barricades up, then, says Professor Freedom, the ERR, which stands for the uh, public law, that is their equivalent of saying uh, mainstream or publicly funded broadcasters will be there, and they'll be reporting in detail about farmers' involvement with Nazis, COVID deniers, swearers or babblers and Putin friends. It will be a party. Uh, in the extremely quiet Baltic town um, of uh, Volgast, barely, population of barely 10,000, you've got that many protesters, uh, and this is regarded even in German terms as a very sedate part of the world with orderly and quiet people. And they're chanting, wir haben die Schnauze voll, wir haben die Schnauze voll. We're fed up to the back teeth. And this gentleman, who is a financial markets journalist, is wondering what's in store for him even in that quietest backwater of Germany. Uh, Epimetheus then goes on to report that train drivers, railroad engineers in US parlance, are going to join the protests next week. Germany's railway system is already creaking at the seams. It's not the efficient beast that many people fondly remember it as. And a financial site, Finanzmarktwelt, reports that the epicenter of the protests is in that state of Saxony, always my top bet for the first state to, deceit, to secede from the German Federation, where according to the local, uh, again, uh, state-funded broadcasters, uh, 19 out of all 20 motorway ramps, on-ramps, are going to be blocked uh, on the, this Monday. We'll see that's, whether that's, that's true at the end of this day. Uh, there's also protests on highways, supermarkets, and petrol stations, and there are thought to be over 30 demonstrations throughout Germany. Let's see where they are. They are, well, far more than 30 on that map. There's one just over the border from me in, in um, Cleves, but I won't be able to get to that. 
And you can see that it really encompasses rural, urban, Catholic, Protestant, north, south, east, west, <clears throat> very much a pan-German affair. So we'll see what comes of it. Sorry for moving that forward. But um, Germany is, is likely to see more troubled times than we've seen for a while. Uh, all of the neighboring countries have seen it come to this. The Germans have held back until now. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Alex. Uh, now, Mark, let's bring you onto the program. And uh, well, you got a little bit of a, a preview of that. Uh, the World Health Organization, what's the latest? Uh, important stuff. Of course, why are we reporting this? We have to keep in mind that if a world pandemic treaty is consummated around May 27th, when the um, next World Health Organization um, shindig is for that purpose, if that's consummated, it's going to reduce, by all indications, national and personal autonomy to opt out of vaccine mandates if and when the next pandemic is declared. And of course, the WHO autocrats and bureaucrats are always telling us it's not a question of when, it's uh, not a question of if, rather, <clears throat> it's a question of when the next pandemic will be declared. So the centralization of authority that very likely would come out of the intensified international health regulations and the creation of a pandemic treaty is keeping in mind why we report this, why this is so vital. But there's a slide here that just gives the basic thrust of this. The WHO deadline is less than three weeks away. This has to do with the international health regulation deadline where they have to have those sewed up four months before May 27th um, when they start working on the treaty uh, in Geneva. And that's a, a very required deadline. Uh, here we have in the next slide, according to Article 55 of the International Health Regulations, this is from the reliable source, James Roguski of Los Angeles. He's been on UK column before. According to Article 55, the deadline to submit amendments for consideration at the 77th World Health Assembly is January 27th of this month, 2024, of course, if the final version of the proposed amendments to the international health regulations is not properly submitted before the deadline, then all such amendments, technically, that is, may not be considered during the 77th World Health Assembly, which begins May 27th, 2024. James Rogowski is always very open about those that want to contact him to get involved. His email is james.rogowski at gmail.com. Uh, people can check out his contact info on the on the show notes. He gives out his phone number. And uh, moving on from there, we have Article 55, and this is where the requirement comes from for the record. The text of any proposed amendment shall be communicated to all state parties by the Director General at least four months before the Health Assembly meets at which it is uh, at which it is proposed for consideration. And so that's where that comes from, Article 55 in the amendment rules themselves. Um, and the mischief that may be involved, according to Roguski and according to what I've been looking at briefly, is that James Roguski believes, and I concurred when we had a conversation yesterday, Mike, Roguski believes that the, um, for on the one hand, the international health regulation amendments are not ready to be considered in time in terms of having complete um, amendments. They're not ready to be considered in time to meet that four-month deadline. But the issue at hand is that the uh, powers that be within the World Health Organization may float some kind of tentative amendment, some sort of document, just to have something in the hopper, just so they can say they met that January 27th deadline four months before May 27th. 
So this is the mischief that might be involved, and whatever they throw in the hopper would be incomplete, possibly containing some kind of propaganda, in Roguski's opinion. And this last slide that I have up here is the U.S. negotiator, Colin McKiff, and he is with the Health and Human Services uh, direct, Deputy Director, Office of Global Affairs, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. U.S. people and others, really, but U.S. people especially, can uh, float some notes to him on Twitter. That's his Twitter account, Colin McKiff at CLM McKiff, M small C I F F. And McKiff Hill, pardon the pun, uh, maybe people can get their message across to him about their concerns. But this is the uh, vital uh, update for now, Mike. Okay, thanks. And Alex, uh, on the same topic then, uh, what's happening in the EU? We have a codicil to what Mark has just uh, presented. Uh, a key phrase in what Mark just mentioned was state parties or states parties in le legal language, which is the member states uh, of an organization who as sovereign executives get together and negotiate a treaty. That's the whole raison d'etre, the sine qua non of having a treaty. However, Dr. Merrill Nass, who's well known to our viewers, uh, from previous appearances on symposiums on UK Column, has got some friendly members of the European Parliament, led by Caroline um, uh, Anderson as before, um, to uh, ask both the World Health Organization and, where they'll have more success, the EU itself, they're being MEPs, they should manage that, that uh, whether it's true that the European Union has been possibly suggesting changes to the texts, to the IHR and the uh, treaty, which is now called um, a convention, a top level, uh, diplomatic document on behalf of its member states. So just a, a, a brief glimpse of the letter, which will be in the show notes, written by Daughter Freedom and Justitia Europa, writing to these MEPs, saying that we understand that the EU, although it's not a signatory to the WHO, and it can't be, although of course the, we know that the WHO co-opts the super rich like Bill Gates to pretend to be countries if you pay enough millions and billions, but they're saying that the basis for the EU um, acting on behalf of its member states, there is an obscure article of the Treaty on the, function of the Functioning of the EU, the technical treaty that sets out the competence of the EU, which can only be given to it and revoked by the member states that called the EU into being. That's how the whole of international law works, of course. And they're saying uh, this is flagrantly wrong because that article only allows for cross-border health issues within the EU to be tackled by the European Commission. Uh, no way, Jose, does it allow the EU to remove fundamental freedoms from members of its individual states. Okay, and uh, two other people that have taken part in uh, UK Column Symposiums in the past uh, are Taylor Hudak uh, and Arnie Buchhardt. Uh, and uh, well, Taylor has published on the Last American uh, Vagabond website an interview with Arnie Buchhardt. Now, he, he, of course, is a pathologist who's been looking into the effects of uh, mRNA uh, on people. And uh, so this is quite a, a, an in-depth uh, interview. This was recorded uh, last May, just before his passing. Uh, and has now been released. So I'd like to encourage everybody to have a look at that. Uh, and uh, just to let you know as well that the Daily Mail has finally uh, decided that it wants to get uh, on the bandwagon uh, with respect to the vaccine injured. So they were tweeting this out uh, this morning, vaccine victims left with life-changing injuries from the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID jabs say they've been censored online when speaking out. Now, of course, that censorship has been going on for a very long time. We've covered it in detail on the UK column. And in fact, the reason we were uh, chucked off uh, YouTube in the first place was because we attempted to uh, carry an interview uh, with the wife of someone who had been severely um, vaccine injured. Uh, and that resulted in our 
being deplatformed from YouTube and from Vimeo, in fact. But the Daily Mail, uh, just looking at the, the language that they use, they talk about claims, they talk about beliefs, they talk about the man who, who is uh, taking a legal case against AstraZeneca uh, at the moment. Uh, in fact, that uh, just so that everybody knows, is uh, a father of two called James, uh, Jimmy Scott, uh, and he uh, suffered a, a blood clot and life-changing injuries as a result. So uh, uh, anyway, that is uh, going on at the moment, the Daily Mail attempting to uh, get onto and pretend to support uh, people, but in fact, you read the language in the in the article, and it's uh, it's not uh, much support there at all, as far as I can see. Um, so, okay, let's uh, move on from there. Uh, if you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. Um, your support very much needed, so please do join us if you possibly can. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but do share anything. Uh, that you find on the uh, platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, tomorrow, uh, an, an interview on farming and food production and how people are coming together. There's Marianne Hill and Michelle Turner coming together to uh, bring farmers and communities together uh, to attempt to uh, make the food chain a much more productive uh, situation. That will be going at 1 p.m. tomorrow. Uh, Charles will be uh, the interviewer for that, so please join us for that at 1 p.m. Um, yesterday, we held the uh, symposium on genocide and empire, examining October the 7th and the geopolitics of the war on Palestine. Uh, that was, I thought, a fantastic event. Thank you to everybody that joined us live for that. Uh, the recording of the full uh, live stream is on the UK Column website at the moment, and over the coming days, we will be uh, uh, changing that to individual presentations so that you can share the individual presentations. Um, but uh, the issue of whether genocide was taking place in Gaza was brought up, and I just want to bring, uh, bring out one little clip from the uh, symposium. Um, this is uh, Richard Falk commenting on uh, genocide. Just want to move this on to question of genocide. So we got, um, well, we got probably a fairly straightforward question here, which which Richard can answer. What one question which came in just said, well, um, what do you say to people that this? What do you say to people who say that this is not genocide? It's simply war. Um, I'll just pass that to Richard um, to quickly address before we get on to other issues in relation to the genocide question. Uh. Well, as I tried to uh, suggest, uh, Israel can't, as the occupying power, has no authority to wage war. It has, an, it has the authority to uh, reestablish uh, its security by reasonable and appropriate means. <laughs> while upholding its primary obligation as the occupying power of protecting, not, de not decimating, the civilian population. The whole uh, uh, emphasis of the Geneva Conventions when it comes to belligerent occupation is the duty of the occupying power to protect the civilian population. And this kind of response that had very little relevance to future Israeli security, in fact, was dysfunctional 
from that obviously dysfunctional from that perspective suggests that it has to be judged on the basis of what kind of operation this was. And given the statements of the Minister of Defense, the Prime Minister, and uh, the religious leaders in the Israeli cabinet, there is no reasonable doubt that the intention was genocidal. And I would be very surprised, even if a relatively conservative International Court of Justice does not agree with that assessment. So, Alex, I'd just like to get your thoughts very, very briefly on that. I mean, Francis Boyle, who's uh, the international human rights lawyer, has also uh, agreed or decided or stated that he believes the South African uh, efforts to bring uh, Israel to the European Court of Justice on this are going to be successful. Um, Just very briefly, what are your thoughts? People get in a funk about this, Mike, because they go to the uh, ceasefire line of 1967 or they go back to the interwar era. But the key point in, that uh, brings it to a fulcrum is 47-48. And the Israeli claims, uh, pushed now by the likes of Natasha Hausdorff, the uh, dual citizen barrister who's always on Sky News and the like, is that Israel uh, took a kind of terra nullius, a no man's land in '48. Uh, because neither the Palestinians nor Jordan and Egypt, respectively, had made a state out of those territories. This has not just been voted against in the UN at General Assembly and Security Council levels, which could rightly be perhaps disregarded as a political action by its nature by force of numbers, but it's also been accepted by the International Court of Justice here in The Hague and by Israel's own Supreme Court, sitting as the High Court of Justice, that in a test case uh, upheld that the uh, Geneva Convention, I don't know about the 77 annexes, but the the original 49 document, and this 1907 Hague regulations were of full effect in this case. So that's where the the stink and the upset goes on. Israel is uh, is doing a special pleading that it kind of took over a bunch of savages and that there was nothing there, therefore there's no occupation, and its own judicial authorities have refuted that. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Let's uh, come back to the UK then, Alex, and uh, well, television licensing. Yes, this is for the second time this news that uh, Mark and anyone watching from the States might be nonplussed by how the British Crown goes about things, because here we have yet another case of cosy corporations masquerading as the Crown. Uh, We've made a decision to refer much less to legacy media and to go straight to source documents in this new year. But we will make an exception for general uh, good old fashioned court reporters such as the gentleman who's gone on behalf of the London Evening Standard to the courts this time, who have filleted some real information. So the headline is the most shocking bit, that a woman who had uh, who, was, who was under basically a curatorship by her local authority in the borough of uh, Tower Hamlets um, actually had a prosecution brought against her. And those with sharp eyes on big screens will see that TV licensing is brought through a controversial fast-track justice system called a single judicial process, if the name serves me uh, correctly, which I think is related to the Northampton bulk uh, uh, processing centres that our viewers brought our attention to some years ago. But uh, here it is, the single justice procedure convicts people. How's this for the mother of democracies that likes telling other countries how to run their justice systems? It convicts thousands of people each week behind closed doors solely on written evidence 
and the defendant's pleas in writing are not uh, uh, observed, are not run through by the uh, pseudo prosecutors before these prosecutions are obtained. It seems to be a target hitting exercise. Um, so let's see some details there. Uh, one here concerns that particular woman, and uh, we haven't put it on screen, but the, um, the Guardian effectively at her local council wrote to the prosecutors saying, you've made a mistake, uh, direct debit for those watching abroad, that's the, the automated bank payment month by month uh, failed, which is a common thread in many of these uh, themes in a time of bank censorship and bank inefficiency. Um, so I've reset the direct debit, it should be going through. Get this, a magistrate, that's uh, somebody who is a member of the executive pretending to be a judge on behalf of the government, accepted the guilty plea on her behalf that was entered by, uh, by on her behalf by her curator or guardian and decided, well, they would, wouldn't they, not to have a full open court hearing where a jury might hear some untoward things. <clears throat> so to add insult to injury, the woman was convicted and given a six-month conditional discharge, but told to pay a victim surcharge to the poor BBC of £26. Now, this is not just something which has gone on in uh, in that particular borough, but also in Eltham in South East London. I think the Standard picked up on this again because it's within their remit in Greater London. And here we have Chili John Carney. I recommend people subscribe to him on YouTube. Uh, because he has made a special work of going into these cases. Jilly John Carney, just in a very brief clip, uh, describes what happened when the Eltham gentleman uh, wrote to defend himself. Again, it wasn't considered in time, it seemed, when he was prosecuted, and said, listen, my wife's disabled, she's not able to handle finances, the direct debit was in her name and got cancelled. And uh, then there's more to the story, which he'll describe very briefly. The next we heard was when they turned up at the door, Okay, so you set the license up at the door. He got his commission that day, the enforcement officer, sold you a license, but you still, you still ended up in court. And that sounds fair. That sounds like a fair situation, does it? And this article goes on. There's more. There's a lot more. It's ridiculous. What a ridiculous system this is. I can see Mark watching in shock on my large monitor, and well, he should, because you heard correctly there, uh, an enforcement officer turned up and sold through the means of a payment card, which was on the excuse that direct debits couldn't work, which I doubt, sold a payment card. There may have been extra commission in that for him or her. The very same day the prosecution went through. And this is an example fished out by the Evening Standard of the kind of written defences that are not seen by the prosecutors uh, before people are taken to court. Um, I don't have an ability to write. My mother's writing for me. I have epilepsy, type 1 diabetes. I'm trying to live off benefits. My TV wasn't working when the officer came around. This is often something which is disputed. Enforcement officers will routinely say TV was found to be working and it's disputed that it was, um, etc. And the license fee's been paid for the months in the interim. Uh, what's to be done about this? Well, Martin Geddes, who has uh, a Substack blog called Future of Communications, has gone straight to the top has gone to the Minister of Culture, Media and Sport. Also in the show notes will be the legal backstory from his previous blog, so you can see his detailed argument. But the headlines presented now to the Minister in Westminster is this. He says, the fraud is that the trading name TV licensing, which people in Britain will see at the bottom of websites and TV pages, is presented to the public as a legal person, but it isn't. Um, a trademark cannot own a copyright. This cannot be an accident. And he goes on, this conversion of a trademark into a chameleon-like legal person, I'd love to hear from intellectual property lawyers to correct or add to this, this allows the BBC to receive the revenue assets because it's a respectable crown-like brand, but the legal liabilities go to capita, the uh, often 
discussed and often failing uh, middleman that uh, inserts itself in many parts of British life. Uh, Geddes himself is a victim of this fraud. Capita usurped the case as an interloper with no standing. He goes on, correspondence is being sent to the public under the brand TV licensing, even with a copyright icon, with no legal person uh, attached to it. And you uh, interact with changes between the BBC and Capita at their whim. They put on different masks, depending on which way the wind's blowing. The BBC demands that checks be made payable to TV licensing, which isn't a legal person. And the direct debit mandates have no fixed legal person attached. Perhaps the banks aren't so crazy to uh, stop the direct debits in some cases. Martin Guinness finishes, my opinion is that the only possible purpose of presenting a trademark as a person is to deceive. It's reasonable to presume that this has been approved of at the highest levels at the BBC and Capita. And he correctly warns that at some point a test case will be brought. Uh, sooner the better, Alex, uh, is what I would say. And I would echo uh, people should uh, subscribe to Chili, Chili, John Ch Chili John Carney on YouTube for much more on the issue of TV licensing and the BBC. And now let's move over to the United States then. Uh, well, actually not, because although we're talking about Donald Trump, uh, this is the Foreign Office up to their work again. So this is apparently an exclusive for the I newspaper. Um, and they're saying that uh, members of the UK's foreign policy establishment are concerned about the impact that Donald Trump returning to power would have on Britain. Now, of course, uh, they've always been concerned about Donald Trump. That's why it, uh, the original Russiagate uh, uh, document was produced by Christopher Steele, uh, a British uh, intelligence agent, shall we say. Uh, and so the Foreign Office is now building a new dossier in the run-up to the US election uh, in uh, later on this year. And of course, uh, Mark, we could argue that that is election interference, could we not? Oh, absolutely, of a sort. Um, this reflects what's going on, as I'm about to report, with the Democratic Party and the greater media here um, in concocting and misrepresenting what's been going on in the courts against Trump. And if with your uh, green light, Mike, I'll proceed. Go for it. Yeah, here we have in this first slide just some headlines here just to see what the legacy media is up to. This is NBC News recently. Colorado Supreme Court, we're told, kicks Trump off the state's 2024 primary ballot for violating the U.S. Constitution. And you can see in the background of this uh, anchor of NBC, Trump disqualified from Colorado ballot. And it makes it sound absolute. But it's not necessarily absolute. Let's move on from there. Um, here we have just a little snippet from that same article dated December 19th, this past December, NBC News, in a bombshell decision. Ooh, bombshell. Colorado's Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that former President Trump's candidacy in the state's primary next year is prohibited on constitutional grounds. This first-of-its-kind ruling we're told, stems from a lawsuit that focused a little-known provision in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Similar challenges in other states have proven unsuccessful. <clears throat> Let's go on from there. And another headline, just as an example, Associated Press, Trump is blocked. Trump is blocked from the GOP people in two states. Can he still run for president? And we'll keep flowing from there. This is some counterpoint, some much-needed counterpoint from a respected writer, Paul Craig Roberts, formed with the Reagan Treasury Department. 
under Ronald Reagan. He's now chairman of the Institute for Political Economy. Uh, readers and viewers can check out his CV uh, on the show notes. Here's a headline, though, from important columns recently. Democrats facing election wipeout resort to desperate actions. So Roberts is uh, believing that the Democrats are very vulnerable in election-wise. And here are some very important key quotes from Paul Craig Roberts. Neither do the Colorado Republicans understand. So it's not just a Democrat problem in all. In their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court for a ruling on the Colorado State Court Constitution, the Republicans argue that the president is not an officer of the U.S. under the meaning of the, excuse me, let me, let me try that again. In their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court for a ruling on the Colorado state court decision, the Republicans argued that the president in general is not an officer of the U.S. under the meaning of the provision in the 14th Amendment, that only Congress has the power to apply the insurrection provision, and that Colorado's ruling, if allowed to stand, if allowed to stand, would violate the people's ability to select candidates in primaries. And we have one more quote from Mr. Roberts. The persecutions of Trump are not legitimate. They are weaponizations of law, lawfare, designed to keep power in the hands of the ruling establishment. That these persecutions are not denounced by bar associations, by law schools, politicians, media, and the American people indicates that the weaponization of law is generally accepted now as a legitimate tool in the struggle for power. And this is a key part. The Democrats who falsely accuse Trump of election interference are now interfering themselves. And that mirrors, Mike, what you were saying about the dossier 2.0 on the other side of the pond. So this kind of blows the lid off the basic fact that Trump was never um, tried uh, or successfully prosecuted or convicted of insurrection. So how can he be removed from both the ballots of Colorado and the state of Maine if he's never been convicted, much less, or, or not, never been tried, much less convicted or sentenced or, or anything like that for actual insurrection? So it's, it's a lot of legal legitimate. It's a lot of misleading um, fakery going on, evidently. And I think that's something people need to understand at this juncture. And this is not a wholesale uh, endorsement of Donald Trump by any means. This is just talking about media uh, uh, complicity in falsehoods and misleading the electorate. And your your uh, your element on this, Mike, about that dossier just adds to the gravity of this. So that that's sufficient for today. Yeah, uh, I would just ask Mark. I mean, because I don't actually see any. Uh, um, prospect of Trump doing anything particularly useful. He certainly didn't in his first four years. Maybe you think that it would be different in the second term. I, I think that uh, there's a bit of panic uh, going on from the UK government, at least, uh, with respect to Trump, because I don't necessarily think that he's uh, capable of, of uh, achieving what he says he is. Yeah, I, I think, well, it's a mixed bag. In his first term, Donald Trump did pull the U.S. back out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He did it on the eve of Bilderberg in June 2017. He called out the media, the fake media, the fake news, which was probably his, you know, you might say claim to fame. He made a lot of headway with that. Um, he did uh, call out the Fed a couple times, and he began to question the Federal Reserve's policies and thinking, 
more than most presidents have done in in recent decades. But then he seemed to boost the uh, vax mandate without much counterpoint, without much uh, uh, rethinking of the situation. I'm not sure what what duress he might have been under. So Trump does come out as something of a mixed bag, but compared to the Biden administration, many conservatives, especially here in Texas, constitutionalists, are yearning to get Trump back in so they because they believe at least it would put us somewhat on the right track, Biden being such an utter disaster, especially with the border. So yeah. that's kind of how it crunches out right now, Mike. But uh, the, the media um, lies and misleading uh, quotes on this, uh, making it look like Trump is guilty of something he isn't, thereby wrongly legitimizing what Colorado and Maine have done. That, that's the main story here. Yes, well, indeed. Well, one country that he likes to consider an enemy, of course, is China. Uh, China is uh, under some sanctions uh, for, for one reason or another. They've decided to hit back on sanctions. So here's uh, the Chinese uh, foreign ministry spokeswoman uh, talking about arms sales to China's Taiwan region. Uh, so she said it's blatant violation of the one China principle and the stipulations uh, of the three China-U.S. joint communiques, particularly the 17th of August joint communique of 1982. Uh, and she went on to say, and the illegal unilateral sanctions the US has imposed on Chinese companies and individuals under various false pretexts seriously harm China's sovereignty and security interests. Uh, so in response to these gravely wrong actions taken by the US and in accordance with China's anti-foreign sanctions law, China has decided to sanction five US defense industry companies. Uh, and those five companies are BAE Systems Land and Armament, uh, Alliant Tech Systems Operation, uh, Aero Verinment, uh, and uh, Viasat and Datalink, Datalink Solutions. So those are the companies that uh, China has decided to sanction. Uh, she went on to say, uh, we urge the United States to abide by the one China principle and the three China-US joint communiques, observe international law and basic norms governing uh, international relations, uh, stop arming Taiwan and stop targeting China with illegal unilateral sanctions. Otherwise, there'll be strong and resolute response from China. So uh, China-U.S. China relations, uh, not at their best at the moment, but uh, same for China-U.K. Uh, because, uh, well, this is the website of uh, China's Ministry of State Security. Uh, and, uh, well, basically, they are claiming that MI6 recruited a foreign national, so not a Brit and not a Chinese, a third uh, country national, that they're calling uh, uh, Huang, uh, and uh, they recruited him in 2015, uh, and he has been spying on Britain's behalf, on MI6's behalf, uh, ever since, uh, including passing over various documents with uh, various degrees of uh, of um, uh, classification with respect to secrecy. Alex, uh, very briefly, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is that uh, something that is unusual? Um, because I would have thought that that type of thing happens uh, quite regularly. Absolutely, it does. That's the whole point of running agents. And the more third country nationals you can bring to the table, the better, because they're more plausibly deniable. Um, so why are they, do you think they're getting so upset about this particular case? Well, it's timing. Uh, timing is everything in espionage. You uh, build up a backlog of such uh, faux outrages and trot them out when the bilateral relationship is deteriorating. I think the Chinese MFA is definitely entering a new strident phase of self-confidence. Uh, I see that the, the state-owned Chinese shipping company Costco will not do any business with Israel or deliver to Israeli ports. And I think it's part of that uh, general tre uh, trend, really, to, to show their hand.
Uh, I mean, they have decided to uh, crack down on what they're describing as foreign consultancies. Uh, and we've sort of seen the same kind of thing in Russia as well. Um, uh, I don't know wh whether that's something that we're seeing in the, in the West with, with the uh, Russian and Chinese counterparts. Yes, you have to take different forms in different environments to do espionage, obviously, beyond diplomatic cover itself. In Russia and Eastern Europe, the Western agencies were able to use a lot of religious and NGO cover because of the nature of the societies and their degree of openness after decommunization. China hasn't allowed NGOs, so you would expect more to be done in a nation that's famously business-minded through consultancies. And uh, that's really something that doesn't surprise. It's just a question, as I say, of, of why now? And that must be because the Chinese feel they have less to lose and more to gain. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Alex. Now let's uh, move on to Estonia. Yes, the main title in um, Tallinn, Postimes, uh, has got uh, a Russian language service, which we'll see here. And at the start of last month, uh, I've been off since, so I haven't been able to cover it. Uh, they reported that the Prime Minister, uh, Mrs. Kallas, had got uh, a plan to ban people uh, from the country. Uh, if they uh, dared to apply for a Russian, uh, fe Russian Federation passport. So using uh, uh, machine translation uh, just for convenience, we see that Interior Ministry Lauri Lanemets said in early November, also covered by Postimes, you can follow through and see the original announcement linked through here, said he was looking for ways to expel from Estonia those who decide to obtain Russian citizenship. I hasten to add that he said in that November announcement, this does not apply to them, there are hundreds of thousands or, or tens of thousands at least of ethnic Russians uh, in Estonia who already have Russian citizenship. Often it's their only citizenship because Estonia makes it jolly hard to get Estonian citizenship, nor would it apply to the children uh, of Russian uh, uh, citizens who have it uh, given to them uh, by the parent, parent's application from now on. But if you're a, an 18 plus resident of Estonia, and that could be a birth, a lifelong resident who's never got Estonian citizenship, and if you now apply for a Russian passport, you could be kicked out. So we read that um, the prime minister was written to by an ethnic Russian member of the parliament, the Rigi Korku, called Mr. Chapligan, who said, what's the legal basis for this? And not for the first time in this news, we see a novel international legal basis, namely uh, that you're a threat to the state. Uh, how does this work? Well, um, allegedly, uh, the idea is that under Article 241 of the Aliens Act, the Interior Ministry uh, can say you're a security threat because... Um, you, you made a decision uh, contrary to us. And there's even a bit more detail here than the Prime Minister's reply. Um, the, the argument is, if you're 18, then clearly because of our glorious independent media and our wonderful free democratic world that you enter in Estonia, it must be entirely evident to you that Russia is a criminal and terrorist state because it's attacked Ukraine. Therefore, there's no possible other motive for you to apply for Russian citizenship on the new fast track that Russia's announced, other than because you must be someone nefarious and you might be ready to attack Ukraine, ergo you're a threat to you to Estonia. No sense at all in international law, uh, but it could lead to an exodus of ethnic Russians from the Balkans, despite the assurance given by the interior minister. Okay, thank you, Alex. Now, speaking of a free media, then... Uh... Well, when was it? October or so last year, we were talking about the fact that the EU's equivalent of the Online Safety Act would be coming into force at the end of the year. And one question in particular was, what would the effects be on Twitter or X? We start maybe to get an idea of that coming through. 
We do, thanks to Reclaim the Net, which I think far better than anyone else online trawls the internet for uh, anything concerning in the domain of media freedom and online freedom. And so the European Commission, in the form of its commissioner, Thierry Breton, uh, has decided to do what he had long trailed he was going to do. Now that the Digital Services Act has gone through the European Parliament and become a law of the Council and Parliament, he, as commissioner, as the executive uh, body, as it were, uh, is going to have a go at Twitter. His formal grounds were announced, ironically enough, on Twitter or X. Uh, the three things that he decided to highlight with his uh, rather infantile uh, hazard signs are suspected breach of obligations under this new EU legislation, obligations to counter illegal content and disinformation. That would be obli obligatory censorship to you and me, Mike. Suspected breach of transparency obligations. And this is a bit more uh, of a of Eurocrat policy wonk talk, suspected deceptive design of the user interface. And uh, we go to uh, reclaim the nets uh, right up to find out the, the main point here, which is that the European Commission is currently being uh, looking into the operations stringently. It's unprecedented, but it was loudly trailed beforehand by Breton that he was going to do it, so it's no surprise. And uh, Reclaim the Net's analysis is that the, the main thrust of the European Commission's case against Twitter or X will be that it may have breached EU law on risk management, data access, dark patterns, lack of censorship, and transparency in advertising. A mixed bag there, some things that most of us would agree with and some things that certainly none of our views would agree with, all lumped together as one uh, infraction and transgression. And of course, that's the justification that they'll always use uh, to cover the, the uh, intended outcome with uh, things that many people can agree with. Uh, but Mark, let's come back to the United States and uh, what's going on uh, with legacy media? Uh, quite a bit. A very brief mention about the Trump segment. He is appealing the Maine and Colorado rulings about ballot access to the U.S. Supreme Court. Just wanted to mention that. Now, here we're showing in this slide the civic news company. And what this is, is probably roughly once a month, give or take, I'll be reporting about the new news ecosystem by the legacy media. They're trying to recreate themselves in certain realms. We've all heard the argument and the concern, oh, there's a news desert out here in the UK, Canada, the US. Local newspapers are closing. Uh, local affiliates of radio and TV stations are closing. Uh, they're going belly up and, oh, we're going to starve to death if we don't get enough legacy news content. Ha, ha, ha. Well, accordingly, and because of people like us, in my opinion, the powers that be are putting kind of a 2.0 legacy media together and trying to repopulate that desert. And our example this week, the main one is Civic News Company. In this slide, we see Elizabeth Green, the CEO and co-founder of Chalkbeat. Now, the Civic News Company has two main elements, Chalkbeat, like chalk on a chalkboard, which is about education news, and Votebeat, which is about elections. And they're limiting it to Texas, Michigan, my main two states, and a couple other states, not the whole nation. And we, we were showing there for a minute on that previous slide, I just wanted to mention real quick of Elizabeth Green, we were showing that according to the 990 IRS tax form, she's pulling down in, according to that form in 2021, $286,762 salary plus 42000 and some change in perks. And the team behind Chalkbeat and Boatbeat is excited to introduce the Civic News Company. That's kind of the parent company. This is a little example of what they're telling uh, consumers of their product and would-be consumers. As many of you know, 
we added a new newsroom to the Chalkbeat family when we launched VoteBeat. VoteBeat covers election administration and voting, and here's those states, Texas, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, um, Arizona, et cetera, uh, in much the same way that Chalkbeat covers public education, et cetera. There have been many benefits to creating VoteBeat from affirming the power of Chalkbeat and our incredible uh, community to informing a conversation and decision-making process plagued by polarization and misinformation. In just a few months, our team revealed the fringe movement that drove an entire Texas County's election staff out of their job, we're told, and uncovered connections between Arizona's Dropbox vigilantes, get that, Dropbox vigilantes, and a national election disinformation system. I'll explain further now as we go along here. Um, this is from the website of the Civic News Company and VoteBeat and Chalkbeat, et cetera. This part being from VoteBeat, elections are in crisis, it says. Election extremists have targeted our democracy, support VoteBeat's nonpartisan, nonprofit journalism to protect the power of the vote. So elections in crisis is not that there could be a hidden vote count, not that there could be a miscount. Not that voting machines might malfunction or be programmed to flip the vote. The only problem is people are asking questions. The crisis is literally, according to this 2.0 legacy media, civic news company and their outlets, the crisis is that people are asking questions. And this other article with that posting, it says, and this is about Gillespie County in Fredericksburg, Texas, a little bit west of Austin. What brought down one Texas County's entire election department? It was something in the water. And that's a um, reference to the fact that some people in Gillespie County have been getting into kind of the age old uh, process of questioning why municipalities are putting fluoride in water, which is a legitimate question for, for actual health concerns. It's not a communist plot. So uh, the people that went to Gillespie County to watch the elections in, in uh, 2020, the presidential election, were asking a lot of questions about the overall process. They were poll watchers, and the press, uh, vote beat included, especially vote beat, was criticizing the people and quoting the people uh, working for the election system who were um, critical of those who were asking questions. And at no time did the uh, vote beat reporters ever actually find out what the poll watchers were concerned about in the 2020 elections in Gillespie County. Did they have legitimate concerns? Vote Beat's not even reporting on that. Now, in this next slide here, we have Dropbox watchers in Arizona connected to national effort from 2000 Mules creators. This is another Vote Beat report stemming from the Civic News Company. And basically what this is saying is that the people watching the Dropboxes in Maricopa County in 2020 and there was a multiplicity of these drop boxes due to the COVID scare. So elections were much more based on people dropping their ballots in insecure boxes. Who had the keys to the boxes? Uh, were, was it possible to replace the ballots that were put in the boxes? There was lots of security concerns, legitimate ones about the boxes. And 2000 Mules is a refer, referral to Dinesh D'Souza, the filmmaker who uh, produced a uh, a film, a, a documentary called 2000 Mules that outlined those concerns about drop boxes in Arizona and other states and those security concerns. 
So again, VoteBeat is completely ignoring any legitimate questions and just writing everyone off as conspiracy theorists and deniers. And so there's this creation of this new news ecosystem by the legacy media. And yet we're seeing uh, there goes uh, the new boss. Here's the new boss, same as the old boss, that kind of thing. The same old um, deceptive reporting techniques. Uh, here in this next slide, we have the civic news company's numbers a little bit. Um, they had revenues of 12.8 million, or yeah, 12.8 million. Uh, expenses of 11.9 million in 2022, I believe that is. And uh, total assets, 8.49 million. Total liabilities, 491,000, I believe that is. And that's, that's from the um, 990 filing in the state of New York. And from 2017, uh, until 2021, they basically doubled their uh, gifts and grants and, and contributions income. It was a little over $6 million in 2017. It doubled to about $12 million by about 2021, totaling over $43 million. And what this is, Mike, is um, Civic News Company gets tax-deductible donations. So they're operating a lot like the BBC and the Public uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which, uh, of course, is where PBS comes from in the States. So uh, those that want to support uh, the Civic News Company financially for what amounts to largely propaganda will get a tax deduction, and it results in that large war chest that I just mentioned. And here's the company they keep. Um, VoteBeat and Civic News Company people were at a uh, Democracy 360 program at the University of Virginia for the Karsh Institute of Democracy. And this is this past October. And we have, um, going from left to right in this slide, we have John Dickerson from CBS News uh, in the upper left. Next to him, going, going to the right, we have Tom Donilon, current chair of BlackRock Investment Group. And he's also with the Trilateral Commission and currently on the Bilderberg Steering Committee. We have Arnie Duncan next to him, Obama's Education Secretary. Next to him, Eric Edelman, former uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Administration in the George W. Bush administration. Mike Emanuel over from him with Fox News, Chief Washington Correspondent. And going down, we have people like Donald Baer to the lower left former White House Director of Strategic Planning under Clinton. Moving from there, Peter Baker, New York Times, Chief White House Correspondent, Laura Baron Lopez, White House Correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and Bob Bauer, former Obama White House Counsel. Uh, and then the next slide, we're kind of wrapping up here, a little bit more of the company they keep. Uh, of course, third from left is Elizabeth Green of uh, the Civic News Company, so she's right in with this crowd, and uh, all, all, over, all the way over to the left, Susan B. Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker, Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of the highly propagandistic Atlantic Magazine, and Anise Parker, president and CEO of uh, LGBTQ-related activities and activism. And uh, moving on from some of the topics covered at that 360 Democracy, Democracy 360 Conference last October, elections and governance, uh, one of the press releases, for the sake of American democracy, candidates urged to commit free and fair elections, to commit to free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power 
And under the trusted information uh, heading, you're being fed lies, how Americans can find truth in the age of misinformation, and so on. And what this boils down to, Mike, is um, calling for the peaceful transfer, transfer of power and asking candidates to commit to free and fair elections is, is code for saying, don't rock the boat too much, don't ask too many questions. We need to accept the election outcomes as an article of faith. We don't need to ask a lot of thorny questions about uh, uh, voting machines. We don't need to listen to poll watchers too much, even though they have a right to be there and they have a legitimate function and, and so on and so forth. That last slide was another one of the participants, um, a couple of them actually, Margaret Spellings and John Bridgeland. And uh, they uh, wrote in a USA Today article recently, well, fairly recently, December of 2021. Uh, uh, people can read about it, but they're talking about and warning people about social media conspiracy theories and that this new news ecosystem is the way to go, basically. And they're representing that. So um, this is uh, part of what's uh, part of more to come on this, Mike. There's there's lots to talk about. We'll be talking about a, an organization called Grist soon. So okay. uh, they fit into this as well. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, right, uh, Alex. Uh, let's let's end with King Charles then. Just a coda to what was discussed on Friday's news about the Prince Andrew fallout from the Epstein document unsealings. Um, the royal family's own website points out. Uh, that Prince Andrew is still, and this is uh, d defined by a 1937 statute, the king can't change it unilaterally, he's still a councillor of state. That's councillor with an S-E. So he's not sitting on a council with an C-I, but he is counselling the king. And this comes from the age of royal travel in the 20th century when various monarchs, the, uh, the last couple of Georges, decided that when they were out of the country, they needed senior royals to be able to sign for them in some situations. So uh, as the royal family's own website uh, points out, they can't do everything. Um, they can't do Commonwealth matters, fire parliaments, uh, hire a prime minister, or create peers. Uh, but there's a lot of things they can do, like stand in for the king at the Privy Council. Prince Andrew is still one of them. And whatever's called routine documents here, Prince Andrew can still sign. I think it's in a, at a, in a twosome with another one of the councillors of state. But again, this is set out by statute. It's not the king's personal decision. Uh, a lecturer in law from Bangor University in North Wales called Craig Prescott has rightly remarked here um, that the monarch uh, really can't change this unilaterally. And also, intriguingly, and I'd, I'd invite follow up on this from viewers, um, that royal assent can't be granted because, as he puts it, this needs a royal hand signature, a sign manual. And yet, by linking to the Royal Assent Act, he's given the game away here. I don't blame him for anything, but there's a lot of sleight of hand in this act as well uh, because the idea here is that um, law becomes uh, assented to by the king, not when it's signed by his hand, we have doubts whether that often happens, but when a committee of lords brings it back to the house and says the king has agreed to it, um, le roi le vote in Norman French is the phrase that makes something law. Uh, so a, a big old mess there, but Prince Andrew is still a representative of the king and it's not likely that he could be booted out with a, without a statutory change at, at Westminster. Yes, indeed. Okay. Thank you, Alex. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for today. I'm going to say thank you very much to Alex and Mark uh, for joining us. Thank you to, for all of you to, for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, for some extra if you're a UK column member. Otherwise, uh, don't forget the interview at 1pm tomorrow on farming. And we'll see you at 1pm for another news programme on Wednesday. See you then. Bye-bye.